Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the letter of Galatians. If you're visiting with us, we're still on the front end of teaching through this great letter. This morning we're going to be reading and then working our way through chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to take it through verse 10. So here Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. So, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. How I pray that you would now work through it. Work through the preaching of your word uh, to effect the truth and the power of the gospel, and the beauty of grace in every single heart 
that is gathered here this morning. Pull together for yourself, not just a people of the gospel, but a people for the gospel in all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as a human being, you may be all kinds of things. You may be a child, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, maybe a student, a teacher, a computer programmer, an engineer of all kinds, maybe an athlete, maybe one of our beloved mathletes. You might be an animal lover, and just go on and on down that trail. As human beings, we can be many things that are distinct from one another. And yet, insofar as you're a Christian, insofar as we are Christians, there is a task that we all share in common. We're all to be together for the gospel in the world. There was a time when the Apostle Paul could not have been more set against the gospel, a time when he would prioritize so many other identity markers besides the one he came to emphasize upon his being converted to Christ. But being converted, he became a Christian, and becoming a Christian, to speak very broadly, he became a free slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's one instance of how he puts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, which is no easy calling. The the best calling, but certainly not an easy one. Stewarding the gospel in this world attracts, as he goes on to talk about, so many trials that are sure to tempt us to unfaithfulness in a variety of ways. And as God is going to reveal where our loyalties lied at the end of the day, Paul says that you and I as Christians, as stewards of the gospel, need to be alerted to something. If a good steward is going to be known for anything, it's going to be for enduring faithfulness to the gospel. Enduring faithfulness to the gospel. And so, dear ones, have we got this particular aspect of our identity in Christ? Do you know yourself, not as the author of the gospel, not as an editor of the gospel, but as a steward of the one gospel? Do you know that you're a part of a managerial team we call the church, whose primary office is to serve Christ and not ourselves, to serve Christ in the preservation, the proclamation, and in the application of the gospel in the world. And if so, have you and I been faithful to that calling? Are we being faithful stewards of the gospel? We are not apostles like the Apostle Paul was, but as we are a church that's striving to be apostolic, striving to be a New Testament church, Paul's path of faithfulness and stewarding the gospel deserves our utmost attention this morning. So, 
Let's start out in verses 1 to 2 with Paul's humility, his humility in service of the gospel. There's this thing, I don't know if you heard of it, called old prophet syndrome. The idea is that this guy has fought so many battles for the Lord, he's done so much for the Lord's people, he's preached and he's pastored and he's pastored and he's preached and he's done it for so long that he's become almost irreproachable or unteachable in his own mind. You come to give him any kind of uh, education or correction, reproof or rebuke, and he's like, who are you to teach me? Don't you know who I am and all that I've done for the gospel? And so his age and his labors and his experience have unfortunately puffed him up beyond even constructive kinds of criticism. In a way, he's become a god in service of God. In a word, we can just say he's become arrogant. He's become hardened and deafened and blinded by what we call pride. And I would bet that that temptation was very real for someone like the Apostle Paul. In verse 1, he says it had been 14, what? Years since his last visit to Jerusalem. That's 14 years of missionary labors. 14 years abroad for Christ. 14 years of being instrumental, not just in the conversion of an individual here and there and there, but in the planting of whole churches of Christians. 14 years of that. 14 years of God-given success with all the sufferings that come with that success in the gospel. 14 years of taking up His cross and taking the message of the cross to the world. 14 years of travail and trial and tears. Oh man. I've obviously been a far lesser servant than the Apostle Paul. And only for 10 years now. But I'm familiar to my shame, I think, with the temptation to shut down useful accountability by the pride that I've sinfully added in so short a service to Jesus. What's so lovely in Paul is that he shows no sign of such pride at all. He sparkles with Christian humility. These first verses tell us he went to Jerusalem because of a revelation is what it says, probably the one in Acts chapter 11 about this famine that was coming upon the world. And that leads the Christians that are in Antioch to send relief to the Christians that are in Jerusalem by the hand of Paul and Barnabas. And you'll want to note in verse 1 there that they brought Titus along with them. And it seems that while they're there, Paul felt the need to square the gospel that he's been preaching among the nations with the pulpit, so to speak, that was stationed in Jerusalem. But the point, the point in this is then a very fine one, okay? It's a very fine point. It's important to see that Paul's not seeking reassurance about the gospel he preaches as if he suddenly had doubts about its essential content and convictions. 
He doesn't. If he did, the power of his argument so far in Galatians chapter 1 and moving into our passage concerning the authority and the, the divinity of his gospel, it would all fall flat. Paul's gospel is the same gospel being preached in Jerusalem. But Paul's gospel is also, this is very important, his gospel is also independent of Jerusalem and the authority there. We need to remember, Paul did not receive the gospel from any man. His gospel is not reliant upon Peter's gospel. Its authority is not derivative of James's approval. Paul received the gospel from God through the risen Jesus. So, his presentation here is not a sudden show of personal doubt about the gospel he preaches. So, why does he make this presentation to these guys? Two thoughts. One is that he wants to make sure that they are still preaching the gospel he preaches. It would be quite a blow to global Christianity, the advance of the gospel among the nations, if the apostles in Jerusalem had begun to require Judaism in order for Gentiles to be counted Christians. So Paul wants to be sure, not that he's still preaching the truth, but that his running for the gospel among the nations isn't going to now face the added hurdle of an errant pulpit in Jerusalem. He wants to hear from them. You might say, it sounds like Paul's mind is made up on the gospel. That doesn't sound very humble may say that because you're more prideful than you know. I want you to hear this. That you can't be both humble and convictional is biblically nonsensical. But it is a worldly idea that's soaked into the very fabric of the church today. It's not humility to be an irresolute Christian. That is arrogance. That's false humility. This kind of waffling back and forth, nothing really matters, don't need to believe anything with any solid conviction. That's a waffling that's masquerading as charity, and it's not. It's actually arrogance. Who are we to tell God what does and does not matter and by how much? If God spoke it, however the Bible tears it, it matters. And it matters more than we know and more than we typically accredit it. Christian humility is greatly, firmly believing with all your heart all God says over against yourself. That's humility. It's laboring to hold the truth firm enough to safeguard it for the whole world 
of God's people future. And I'll now add this. That Paul is absolutely sure of the gospel he preaches doesn't mean that Paul is sure of himself. The gospel may never change, but Paul might. Remember this from Galatians 1? But even if we, yeah, even if we should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. Now he's speaking in hypotheticals there. But in that hypothetical, there's genuine humility. He's sure of the gospel he preaches. But sure as he is of the gospel he preaches, there's no doubt then that he also at the same time keeps a submissive heart that's willing to be strengthened in the faith, especially by other faithful stewards of the gospel. So this church, you may know this, has ministerial residence. And every other week, we get to have all kinds of fun together. We go putting and all these kinds of things. No, we don't. We don't do that. Um, they actually come and they attend one of our elders' meetings. And in that elders' meeting, we do service reviews. And within the service reviews, we do sermon reviews. Uh, And the great benefit of that is that it helps us to avoid becoming, over time, crotchety old prophets, as it were. And some of you are saying, it's way too late for you, Brian. What they do is they pop our puffiness and they work in us truth-exalting humility for a life of faithful ministry. And that is what we desire here. We desire a submission to one another out of reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His gospel. And that's what we see in Paul. We see a humility in service of the gospel. And with it, we see a stability in service of the gospel. That's the second thing here, picking up in verse 3. We noted Titus, okay? Titus was not a Jewish man. He was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. What that meant was also that Titus was an uncircumcised man. And thus, Titus becomes a sort of case study while Paul is in Jerusalem. I'm not sure we understand just how important circumcision was to Jewish people. I read this week that while they were under foreign rule, they still continued to practice circumcision even at the threat of death for doing so. Why would they do that? Well, because in the Old Testament, circumcision is something that set them apart, not just as Jewish people, but as part of God's people. It was a scriptural marker in which they found their vital religious identity to the point that in Paul's day, it was expected by Jewish people that a male Gentile converting to Judaism would be circumcised. And so it wouldn't be so surprising if a Jewish 
believer in Jesus now had a hard time with the truth that circumcision was no longer necessary for being a part of God's new people in Jesus. They would have a hard time with this biblical gospel idea that faith in Jesus was enough. So, there was this almost prevailing notion, as we're seeing in the churches of Galatia, that unless you were circumcised, listen now, you were not entirely converted. Unless you were circumcised, you were not yet a full member of God's family. Unless you were circumcised, you were not sufficiently justified before God. Again, faith in Jesus, they're arguing, that's fine, that's well and good. But without circumcision, faith in Jesus is not enough. You need more. And they're saying then, Titus is not a Christian. And so, Paul presents his gospel to Peter and James and John. And for the sake of gospel clarity, they bring up Titus. Does this man, listen, does this man have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian on the level with Jewish believers? I don't know if you heard it there, dear ones, but listen, the very heart of the gospel is on the line in the answer to that question. It's how can any sinner whether they're Jewish or not, how can any sinner be declared right in the sight of a holy God? That's what's on the floor. And if it's answered by Peter and John and James, yes, Titus must be circumcised. The gospel is compromised. The grace of God is opposed. The cross of Christ, as he's going to say in chapter 2, is nullified. He died for nothing. And now listen. It's the same thing if we say to be justified before God you must repent of your sins and believe in the crucified and risen Jesus. And be baptized. And y'all know I love myself some baptism. The gospel is compromised if we say to be declared right before God, you must believe in Jesus and join a church. Believe in Jesus and use the spiritual gifts 
that God has given to you. Believe in Jesus and take the Lord's Supper. Believe in Jesus and attend so many gatherings. Believe in Jesus and make sure that you never miss corporate worship. Now, listen, all of those things are biblical, I would argue, and beneficial for your soul. They're all means of grace to build you up in Christ and to edify your soul. But where any of those things, those additions, wander from matters of progressive sanctification into the basis of once-for-all justification, they've gone astray from the gospel truth. On the basis of none of those things, does God declare you a sinner pardoned? A sinner counted righteous with the righteousness of Christ. A sinner forever accepted. That right there comes entirely through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we can thank God the Jerusalem apostles didn't miss what so many had and were missing. Still in the Old Testament, circumcision, it's there, but it also pointed beyond itself to this gift of God that we call a new heart. Circumcision of the heart. That circumcision of the heart, that new heart, that new birth is the substance that made the shadow of circumcision ultimately fade away. And as that new heart then produces faith in Jesus, where that faith is, circumcision no longer needs to be as an identity marker for the true and justified child of God. Faith in Jesus is enough. You have the real circumcision. You have a new heart. Titus then was a Christian. And these circumcised men, Jewish born, yet born again to faith in Jesus, they agree with Paul. This Gentile, Titus, does not need to be circumcised. He is a Christian, same as we are. No additions necessary. And so the truth of the gospel, and specifically the truth of justification, was nailed down right here. It was nailed down. Which tends to be where serpents begin to slip in and rise up. It is a sad fact that in the church there are those who are not what they say they are or what they seem to be. As we see in verse 4. Now to be fair, they probably aren't aware of it themselves. They think they're, they're brothers. They think they're sisters. They think they're Christians. But, as Paul has to say here, they're only falsely. So, they're false brothers. 
false sisters, false Christians. So the question for you and me is, how can we then discern what they cannot discern for themselves? And for Paul, the answer to that is very simple. For the justification of a sinner, do they require anything more than faith in Christ crucified and raised from the dead? Do they require anything more than what God requires for justification? Do they require anything more than what God has given and commended as more than enough by raising the crucified Jesus from the dead? If so, whatever else they seemed to be, they're to be counted as spies that have slipped in as instruments of the serpent to slip you into slavery again. This is a major theme in the letter of Galatians. So I want you to hear it. It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. (laughs) They don't come better than that. For freedom, Christ has set you free. He's freed you, believer, from the torments of believing you have to keep a moral code to any degree in order to be justified. He has freed you from believing you must keep a moral code you know you cannot keep and have not kept in order to live eternally and be accepted by God in heaven. No, in Jesus Christ, you are free from it all or to any measure depends on me. You're free from that. You're free to rest in Christ has done it all. Everything that needed doing to save me from my sins, Jesus has done it all. He is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. A person is my righteousness. And therefore, you're free to live not in these bonds to Moses, but in this liberty of the Holy Spirit, in this justified state of a new heart that's captive to the love of Christ. You are free, in other words, to be Christ's new creation. And if anyone begins to cast doubt on that by teaching works and rituals and law as in any way justifying, we are obligated, Paul says, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ's church to plant our feet on the solid ground of grace and never ever yield, never ever submit to it, even, verse 5, for a split second. When such error rises to bite and spit its venom, or to clamp us in these Christless shackles, again, it's our duty to stand tall and refuse to bow down. It's our responsibility, again, to do as they did and exercise this stability in service of the gospel. Christ is my righteousness. That's freedom. Christ is my life. 
That's freedom. Beloved, as soon as a church loses the gospel, as soon as a church loses the doctrine of justification, she loses herself. Such an assembly is no longer a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear, submission to true brothers who love the gospel, so very good. Yielding to false ones with an appetite for irons, never any good. Humility in service of the gospel, stability in service of the gospel. And next then, for a faithful stewardship, there needs to be unity in service of the gospel. Okay, so if I can tie together the several threads that you see in verses 6 to 9, it would probably come out something like this. They are together as stewards for the gospel in the world. They're together for the gospel. So it's not just Paul and his associates who refuse to give an inch to these awful distortions of the gospel. Don't you see what he says? He says, those who seemed to be influential in Jerusalem, they not only have affirmed that Titus, without circumcision, is a full-on Christian, they added nothing at all to Paul. They added nothing. They agreed with him. And they took their stand against these false brothers as well. So they put forward this united front for the gospel against these opponents. And and this right here then is a watershed moment. Getting the gospel right and then preserving it right and true to God is of preeminent importance. Getting the gospel right is of preeminent importance. And aligning with that is all critical for unity and service of the gospel. You see what Paul repeats throughout the passage? Four times how these guys seemed influential. They seemed to be pillars, verse 9. He's not meaning to slight them, and I don't think that they understood him to be doing that. In fact, what Paul is doing is actually admitting their honor and authority among those churches in Jerusalem, but he's doing it in a way that does not unduly then elevate them to the throne of Jesus Christ. He's saying, no, they have their place, but it's not God's place. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, no man is bigger than the gospel. No human pillar is more essential to the church than the truth, the pillar of justification. Let every Peter, James, John, and Paul be put out a thousand times before the message of the cross is put out. A person's greatness and influence in the church, they're being pillar-like among you, is entirely, entirely relative to their faithfulness to the gospel. No man is bigger than the gospel. So, are they faithfully stewarding the gospel? God, verse 6, 
shows no partiality. So much of our tinkering with the gospel is owing to our fishing for human approval, organizational applause. (laughs) Do you see how many baptisms that church had? Need to give that pastor an award. South Carolina Baptist Pastor of the Year. tinker with the gospel because we're fishing for worldly gain. People are really fickle. People love a good show in the flesh. And so you put on a show and you play to their likes. You do that, you will find influence in the church. You'll be exalted only You will not be exalted for all the reasons that God will exalt people at the last day. Want to know how crucial it is to be faithful to the gospel? In this passage, the single basis of God's smile and seal upon a ministry is, wait for it, faithfulness to the gospel. God to say the least, is, is not like us in these ways. God does not hear Peter preach the gospel and go, wow, that Peter, he is something special. I remember walking out one time, uh, I was in seminary, and um, David Platt had come and preached in our chapel And he had preached Romans chapter 8. And afterwards, all the seminary students who are now probably pastors and missionaries and whatnot were like, wow, David Platt is amazing. And it broke my heart. David Platt is nothing. Honor him for what he is. He seems to be influential. Seems to be a pillar. Okay? Honor him for that. But if you come away from today and you're not like, Jesus is great. God is amazing. You've missed it. Oh, Peter, he's something. God doesn't go, James is preaching. Whatever he says, it's going to be as good as gospel. He does not prefer the gospel preaching of Paul. Listen, this is so encouraging. He does not prefer the gospel preaching of the Apostle Paul to the gospel sharing of so many of you this week. God is not swayed by the supposed stature of people. He does not put greater stock in the greatest preacher ever over against the worst. God puts stock in the proclamation of the gospel. 
and so did these men. If you look through verses 7 to 9, that's all their concern. It's being together for the gospel in the world. We see it. God has entrusted Paul with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the nations. Same as Peter has been entrusted by God with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews. So there is not a gospel for the nations and then another gospel for the Jews. There are different missional contexts that we need to be aware of, but that does not change the essential contents of the gospel message. And Peter and James and John and Paul, they shook hands on that and off they went to serve Christ in their respective spheres in the world. And just so, You and I and others certainly do have differing skill sets, differing gifts, differing passions, different callings, differing spheres of influence. We may have differing thoughts on church polity and procedures and practice and traditions, but as Christians, we should all have this gigantic thing in common, faith in the gospel and a unswerving passion to see that gospel spread abroad throughout all the world to all peoples. We should be together for the gospel. In the church down the road. We should be together for the gospel in the clothes closet beneath our feet. We should be together for the gospel on the campuses on either side of us. We should be together for the gospel within the neighborhoods, the complexes, the apartment complexes that we indwell. We should be together for the gospel in our homes. We should be together for the gospel among the religious and the irreligious. We should be together for the gospel amongst our friends and amongst our foes, those who hate us for it. We should be together for the gospel amongst the very, very young and also the very, very old. We should be together for the gospel amongst majority culture and minority culture. We should be together for the gospel amongst the rich and amongst the poor. There's one gospel for all of them. And there's one God who is working through us in making our appeal to them. All who are weary and heavy laden with sin come to Christ, come to the Savior, believe on Him, and He will save you from your sins, whatever else you may be. He will save you. And so it would be a shame, it is a shame, to find any reason to be anything but humbly and stably united 
in service of the gospel. So, humility, stability, unity, and last but not least, impartiality in service of the gospel. We're heading in that direction. As they depart together for the gospel, there is one thing more they all agree upon, and it's in verse 10. That should stand out to us. Only they asked us to, you say it. There you go. Remember the poor. And Paul adds this, the very thing I was eager to do. Uh, This week I was just thinking, is that how I think of Paul? Is that how we think of Paul? The great apostle, Paul. Missiologist for the world. He's who puts it all together for us. You want to take the one gospel to all these peoples? Paul. Author of Romans. No offense, Galatians. Martyr for Christ. Lover of the poor. Hmm. Or, when we think about gospel ministry, without distorting it into a social gospel, which is not the gospel. Do we think in terms of remembering the poor? And why would that be the only reminder as Paul took to the nations again with the gospel? Only remember the poor. I don't think it matters much how we understand the poor here. You want to know, I think it's likely referring to Christians in general, especially in lieu of the fact that he's coming to relieve the poor saints in Jerusalem because of the famine that's coming on the world. But whether it's that precise or it's more broad, the poor, the emphasis is notable, right? The poor are often the forgotten of the world. And yet, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.26, of so many in the church, quote, not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, they're nothing. Why? To bring to nothing things that think they're everything. So that, if we're going to make any boast ever in that we are now children of the living God, it's only, only, only in what God has provided for us in the Lord Jesus. Boast in the Lord. That's the point. And indeed... Though Christ was rich, He became poor, that we poor might become rich in grace and rich in glory. But So the stewarding issue then is this, 
Is the gospel really for all peoples? Or is it only for those who can pay us back? Is it only for those who can pad our reputation? Or is it also for those who have no reputation at all? Is it only for those who will do charity to us or also for those who will test the depth of Christian charity in us? And all the poor grad students among us said, Amen. Just as all the hospitable among us said, To Christ be all the glory for all His grace to me. Beloved, there is gospel vindication in tangibly caring for one another. What is it the Apostle John says later on in 1 John? This is very convicting. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, Christian, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him. That kind of help showcases the cross. He laid down his life for you. You got to lay down your life for the brothers. What does Jesus himself say in Matthew 25? But that insofar as you did it to one of the least, one of the least of these Careful now, my brothers, Christians, you did it even to me. So such care to you, the body of Christ, is care applied to Christ himself. Do we here remember such poor as remember Christ? Do we hear, do what you can for every member of the body as a gospel issue that we should be eager, like Paul, to meet whenever we can? Do we see how impartial charity or impartial love serves the truth of a gospel that welcomes sinners impartially? Friend, we want you to know there's nothing in the way of your eternal salvation besides your own present love of sin. Nothing. There's certainly no lack in the love of God. He's made it clear as He can possibly make it as God in the giving of His Son. Jesus lived without sin. And then Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. And then he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And the message to your heart this morning, I pray, in that is this. You believe. That's it. You believe in him. And he will save you. Well, church, we have been called to steward, not author, not edit, steward the gospel. 
And it's required then of stewards that we be found faithful. And as there are so many enemies then, both inside the church and outside the church, those who, like Paul, navigate the paths of stewardship faithfully should be much appreciated. Thank you, Lord, for this example. In all grace this morning, how is your humility? In all grace, how is your stability? In all grace, how is your unity? In all grace, how is your impartiality? Is it all in service of the gospel today? We're going to know. We're going to know if in 14 years from now, we're still, wherever else we may be, together for the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much again for your word. And we ask now that you would exalt the gospel even further in ways that go beyond human words. Teach us yourself, Lord. Teach our hearts yourself. Be glorified in us. Be exalted in our midst. Bind us together for the sake of the gospel in this church and in this community and beyond it. We ask this in Jesus' name, who is our only hope.